This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey there. This episode contains a little bit of salty language, so get those earmuffs ready. The U.S. women's national soccer team played their very first game of the World Cup against Thailand. Nancy Armour was in the stands watching. She reports for USA Today. The first goal, it, it was Alex Morgan, and it just it was almost just like you took the cap off a bottle of soda after it's been you know shaken up. Alex Morgan knocked the ball into the goal with her head. Alex Morgan, this one will count. She started windmilling her arm in celebration, and then she just ran into a giant bear hug with practically the whole team. And then in the second half, when they scored, I think, four times in about a six-minute span, it was just, most of us were just kind of laughing, like, oh my God, it's, this is like starting to border on the absurd. Shot taken, and Rose Lavelle made the right decision to nothing U.S. It's loose, and there's one for the U.S. It's 3 nothing. Just one after another after another, and they all just looked happy. When you have to feel for Thailand, it's Sam Mewis who actually initiates this play. Valley, even though this is the blowout that most people expected, the coaches are still working at the conversation. The Americans won this game by the biggest margin in World Cup history. Some are saying they showed poor sportsmanship by celebrating after every one of their 13 goals. And Thailand wept. American players went over to comfort the Thai team when it was all over. And the Thai coach actually thanked the Americans for their sportsmanship. But the on-the-field celebrations were still controversial. Honestly, if, if anyone wants to come at our team for not doing the right thing, not playing the right way, not being the right ambassador for the sport, uh, they can come at us because I think our only crime was an explosion of joy last night. Uh, we've been really Nancy says... Sure, the U.S. team was celebrating a lot, but the first thing to understand is that in the World Cup, every point counts. If there's a tie later on, teams will advance based on how many goals they've racked up. You've got to play full throttle all the time. And also, too, if the U.S. had just simply kicked the ball around in its you know back half of its field, that would have been so insulting to the tie players. It's basically saying, you can't compete with us and you're not worth our best game. And that, to me, and I think any athlete would say, there is absolutely nothing more insulting than that. But for the Americans, this huge win was about more than just piling up points. You know, part of what you saw, the the enthusiastic celebrations and why there was just this explosion from them, they've had a really tough couple of months. You know, they made the decision in March to, to, to file the lawsuit knowing that it was going to be hanging over them in the lead-up to the tournament and, and at the tournament. This lawsuit is about gender discrimination. Every member of the U.S. women's team has signed on to it. They argue that when you've got a team as strong as they are, a team that can score more goals in a single game, 
than any other team that came before. Why wouldn't they earn as much as their male counterparts? For Nancy, when the women won that first game and the pundits started piling on, it was as if some people were saying, come on, ladies, no one expects you to act like athletes. Keep playing like the women's auxiliary so we can keep paying you like one. I had absolutely no problem with the celebrations, and I will continue to say that and, and shout that from the rooftops. And I've gotten a lot of pushback, but most of the pushback has been from men. Is this a case of the women are getting, you know, that they're being seen as too bossy, too aggressive, too loud, you know, all of the things that women aren't quote unquote supposed to be? Is that what, you know, is that playing a, a part in this? Today on the show, the U.S. women's team wants to win, on the field and in the courts. Can they make women's soccer better for everyone else in the process? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm going to ask you where you would start the story of this fight for equal pay with U.S. women's soccer. Where would you start this? Honestly, I would start it back in the 80s, 80s and early 90s. Caitlin Murray just wrote a, a great book called The National Team, and it, it traces the history of the, the U.S. women. And, and really, it, it goes back to the very beginning. You know, the first teams didn't have their own uniforms. They had to wear basically cast-offs from the men's team. It's the age-old story of all women's sports. They were riding in vans while the men's players were traveling on planes. They didn't really have anything to play for initially. The first World Cup wasn't until 1991. And it wasn't that they didn't know what they didn't have. It was they were so thrilled to have a place to play finally and, and uh, you know, to be able to play internationally. But then you saw that, that those teams, the early teams, 91, 95, certainly the 99ers, started pushing U.S. soccer for more more benefits to, to be put on equal par with the men's teams, whether it was the pay or the way that they traveled or the number of coaches that they had. This is not something that just developed within the last couple of years. And if you talk to any member of the current team, they will say that their fight now isn't so much for them. It's for the women who come after them because they have benefited from the women who came before them. And so they are obligated to pass it along. Hmm. So the women are going to be back in court right after the World Cup ends. I'm wondering if you can just lay out the basics of what they're arguing for. The women have said that that U.S. soccer treats them differently, that they do not get the same benefits as the men's team, whether it's their bonuses for games or their pay structure or even the way that they travel, the kinds of fields that they play on, the way that their games are marketed, the pricing of tickets. It's the attitude that U.S. soccer has toward its two different teams. And U.S. soccer has responded and, and said, 
we don't discriminate and you basically can't make these claims because you are completely separate, that, you know, there is no relation. There is no way to compare the men's team to the women's team. I don't get that, though. There's there's no way to compare the women's team to the men's team. Well, U.S. soccer says that, you know, you have two separate unions. You negotiated two separate collective bargaining agreements, both of which is true. They're basically saying you're you're separate versions of national teams, but we don't have just one national team. On the left side, we have the men's program, and on the right side, we have the women's program. And yes, we run both of them, but you're not the same, which is interesting slash questionable because U.S. soccer basically commingles its resources. So it kind of seems a lot of times as if U.S. soccer is talking out of both sides of its mouth. And, you know, it's going to be up to a judge to decide whether that is true or not. Yeah, even the language around it sounds a lot like Brown versus Board of Education, separate but unequal. Separate, but yes, exactly. And, you know, I think that's, if you look at any kind of gender equity case in sports, in business, in anything, I think you'll find very similar circumstances. Can you articulate the full argument against the women here? Because I have heard people basically saying there's no reason for the women's team to be treated the same way the men's team is treated. Can you just articulate really clearly what that argument is? Well, I don't think that there is an argument to be made for that. Um, But there will be people who will say the men's World Cup brings in more money. The men's games are better attended. They get higher ratings, basically that they generate more revenue. And while that can occasionally be true, if you look at the year fiscal year 2016 in U.S. soccer, they were projecting to have a deficit. And because the women won the World Cup and because they had a victory tour and some other things, they ended up having a significant surplus. So that was all on the women's team. You can't separate out how much, you know, is this sponsor sponsoring U.S. soccer because of the men's team or because of the women's team? We don't know that. We don't know if four of their sponsors are sponsoring because of the women's team. We, we don't know that. And there have been some people who who have made the argument that you should just have, whether it's separate federations or have FIFA organize the, the men's and the women's World Cups completely separately. You know, those are interesting arguments to, to have. Has the conversation spread to other countries? Like, is it not just the U.S. having this conversation? Yeah, um, Australia is dealing with it. Even just, you know, the Thai coach on, after the game, somebody asked her about competing with the U.S. and she pretty much said, we can't. Um, and it's because that federation doesn't put the money into its team that the U.S. does. You, you know, for even with the question about equal pay, U.S. soccer does put money into the women's program, certainly a lot more than many, many, many other countries around the world do. I mean, you look at like Jamaica is here because it's it has a personal benefactor. Thailand gets most of its money from a woman who's an insurance magnet. There is varying levels of support for teams around the world. So yeah, the rest of the world is watching and, and particularly the players are watching what the women, U.S. women do and, and what kind of a result they're going to eventually have in court. Hmm. You know, you're at the World Cup right now. I'm wondering if you can go into a little bit more detail about how other countries are looking to the U.S. and how they're sort of seeing the U.S. maybe as a bit of an inspiration as they fight for their own resources in their own countries. Tell me a little bit about Ada Hegerberg. Right now, she's the best player in the world. She won the inaugural Ballon d'Or, which is given to the best soccer player in the world. 
She plays for Olympique Lyonnais, a club team here in France, and they just won their fourth European Champions League title. They're the the queens of, of French soccer. And she does not play for Norway's national team anymore. She hasn't since 2017 because she feels as if the Norwegian Federation has made the women's program take, an, take a backseat or a short change the, the women's program. And because of her protest, Norway now pays its male and female soccer players equally. There's still some other things that she has issues with, development, youth development programs, field conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And so she is is not here at the World Cup. So, yeah, I mean, this is not an issue that is unique to the U.S. We're seeing it all over. And, you know, we're also seeing kind of the flip side that other countries have looked at the U.S. and said, hey, we want that. We want to be like the, the U.S. women. We want our program to be up to that standard and have started putting money into it. So you're seeing this World Cup in particular, you're starting to see the results. What do we know about what Ada Hegerberger is saying about why she doesn't want to play. I mean, if the equal pay is already there, why isn't she at the World Cup? Well, she said that there are other issues with the national team. And she hasn't, she's been pretty careful because she's, she has said she doesn't want to distract from the national team, the players who are here. And and some of her interviews that she did months ago are only coming out now. So there's been a, a little bit of a backlash against her. But, you know, when she has talked about her issues, she's brought up the the development of the women's game, you know, the youth programs and how much money and support is given to those. She's talked about field conditions, you know, how many fields are available to men and how many are available to women. But she's also said, you know, I have not wanted to put a laundry list out there because I've, I've wanted to see what the Federation will do, but I have made my concerns clear to them. There has been no pushback from Norway on that. So clearly she has made herself clear to them and has listed her complaints. And she does not feel that those complaints are being adequately addressed. It's interesting because her approach seems to be almost the polar opposite of what the U.S. women are doing, which is a really massive marketing campaign, getting their story out there, telling their story on social media and explaining exactly what they want. They want equal pay. They don't want to play on turf. They want chartered jets. They want to be treated equally in very specific ways. And I wonder if looking at these two approaches tells you anything about how successful they are and what that might mean for the U.S. women when they head into court. I think it's it's different. I think there there are also cultural differences too. You know, the the U.S. culture we're used to speaking out. I'm not sure if it's quite the the same in Norway. I, I don't know that. But also too, this is not a single person issue in or you know one player fighting the fight in the U.S. It is the entire national team has signed off on this lawsuit. So there is that old saying: there is strength in numbers. And so I think they feel a lot freer to speak out and to go public with their complaints because it is all of them versus if it was just one player, I would imagine that would probably be a very lonely place to be if you are the only person trying to address this. But again, it is the entire national team. They are unified and that provides cover for all of them and obviously gives them more freedom to to speak about this. I also wonder, looking at what's happening with women's soccer, if there's a bigger problem here, which is whether U.S. values soccer as a sport, period. I think we I think the U.S. does. But I think unlike the rest of the world, 
we don't just have really one sport in our country. We have American football, we have baseball, we've got basketball, we have hockey, we have gymnastics, we have maybe karate and some kids run track or play volleyball. And then yes, some kids play soccer, but some of our best athletes are going off into other sports, whereas that's not the case necessarily in other countries, uh, certainly not to the degree that it is in the U.S. So I don't think it's that we don't value soccer. I think it's just that it's really hard to get traction with as many different interests as we have and as many different avenues that that kids can take in terms of athletics. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was struck, you know, Abby Wambach, U.S. soccer player, gave this commencement speech at Barnard a little while back. How is it going? And she really clearly articulated how some of the U.S. women feel about their situation with the Federation. And she talked about standing next to Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant Mm -hmm. and how she realized, you know, their hustling days were over. Right. (laughs) And hers had just started. Because Kobe and Peyton walked away from their careers with something I didn't have. Enormous bank accounts. <laughs> and because of that, they had something else I didn't have. Freedom. But all he could think was, well, they're a football player and a basketball player, and it's so different in the United States. Whereas there is no solid, really, you know, it's not collapsing U.S. soccer league for women that's like the NBA, essentially, or even like the WNBA. And it just made me wonder, like, is the problem here really one of marketing and also kind of one of us? Yes, to all of the above. If you go back and look at early attendance figures, say for the NBA, their numbers were not great for the first probably couple of decades. And they're if you look at, say, the WNBA numbers, the WNBA has actually had better attendance in its earliest years than the NBA had. It's just that we have so many different things to capture our attention now, and, and we haven't even gotten into video games and all those other things. So it is hard, especially with these women's leagues that have just started within the last 20 years, for them to carve out space and and to gain a foothold. But you know, I think we see with the national team, with the, the WNBA now, there is a market for women's sports. You just have to market it properly and make sure people know about it. And we haven't, as a society, done a good job of championing women's sports. And that's on all of us. It's on the media. It's on the general public. It's on the people who own these teams. It's on the leagues. It, you know, it's, it's, it is a widespread problem. And I think we're just now kind of starting to take a look at it and trying to figure out how you fix that. You know, a perfect example, Portland Thorns has, I think they average about 15 or 16,000 per game in attendance for the NWSL, the team in Salt Lake, very similar numbers. So what are they doing? So you can't tell me that there's not a market for it, but what are those two teams doing that is different than everybody else? Because there are some teams that are that draw horribly. Is it the stadium that they're in? Like I'm based in Chicago, and the Red Stars and the Major League Soccer's Fire play at a stadium that is not easy to get to. You know, that's a factor. Is the team or are the owners marketing it properly? It's a really interesting, or it should be a really interesting case study in what 
some of these teams are doing because clearly they're having success and some are not because clearly they're not having success. You know, I was also thinking about what's happening in women's soccer because I interviewed Muffet McGraw a couple of weeks back Mm -hmm. and she was talking about women in basketball. And I was thinking about all of the criticism the women's soccer team had gotten for celebrating their goals, like we talked about earlier. And Muffet said something really interesting to me, which is she said a lot of her job is teaching women that conflict is good. And that's part of playing the game. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, be sportsmanlike, but conflict is good. And it seemed to me looking at the reaction to the women on the soccer field celebrating the U.S. women's soccer team like got that message loud and clear. You can see it on the field. You can see it in this lawsuit. But I just wonder if the rest of us need that lesson. I think that's a really interesting question. And it's something that I've actually been been looking at because if you're a woman in the U.S. at this point, you can't really ask for better role models than this group. I mean, they're they are the best at what they do. They're also a from what we can tell, a pretty good, you know, group of human beings, but they don't back down from anybody. I mean, they're, they're proud of, of how good they are. They know it. They're not apologizing for it. They're not ashamed of it. And I think that's where we need to get our women in the U S to be that take pride in your, in your success and your ability and what you do better than anybody else. It's a good thing. And, and for two, for too long, we've been told that, oh, you know, women don't brag. We, you know, we don't boast. We we need to be quiet and, and charming and, and smile. Um, and these women are saying, no, it's okay to be, and they like to use the word badass. I don't know if you can use that, but <laughs> they're proud of that. And I, like I said, I think that that's something that all of us could probably take a lesson or two from. I love that. Nancy Armour, thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me. Nancy Armour is a columnist for USA Today Sports. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. Little special shout out today to Allison Benedict, Merritt Jacob, and Pierre Bienname. We should really thank these guys more often. If you want to find me on Twitter, you can reach me at Mary's Desk. Talk to you tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.